like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them with me to the, uh, the book of 1 John, the book of 1 John. Uh, towards the end of your Bible, you'll find this little uh, epistle, and we're going to start reading from chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We'll do that in just a couple minutes, uh, but it would be helpful if you have your Bible open to 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. This past week, the Washington Post included in an article an essay by a plastic surgeon, and it's called, What Do My Cosmetic Surgery Patients Want to Look Better in Selfies? Um, I learned about this article on Albert Moeller's podcast called The Briefing. Here is how uh, Dariah Hamra, he's a cosmetic surgeon who works at Nova Surgicare in McLean, Virginia, which is one of the cities right next to Washington, D.C. Uh, this is how he started this article. Listen, 10 years ago, a typical patient at my plastic surgery clinic in McLean, Virginia, was 47 or 48. She, in parentheses, about 80% of his clients are women, generally wanted to look like a younger version of herself, or else she wanted the best version of her basic appearance. This might mean a face or neck lift, eyelid lifts, a brow lift, a skin resurfacing procedure, or Botox injections. What do you recommend, she'd ask. This is the kind of work I got my, into my profession expecting to do, and these are the consultations I expected to give. Today, though, contrast, my average patient, according to my office records, is 38 or 39. She'll come in fixated on a specific flaw and often knows exactly what procedure she wants. Her nose is crooked, she's sure, or her chin is too small or too large, or her eyebrows appear droopy. I need a tip plasty, she will say. A tip plasty is rhinoplasty for the end of your nose. And these patients are much real, less realistic about what I can achieve. They will ask for Kim Kardashian's nose, even if their facial structure looks nothing like hers. There's, here's here's this explanation for the change of his practice. There's a reason for this rapid and radical change. Selfies. Now, it used to be that the um, most influential uh, uh, element in cosmetic surgery was television or movies or magazines. People would look at uh, pictures and see uh, a, a face, a face that had been very photoshopped so it could appear in the magazine and want to look like that or have improvements like that. Now, without a doubt, though, the greatest influence in cosmetic surgery is social media. Hamra's clients, they look at hundreds and hundreds of pictures of themselves that they have taken with their phone and then come to him for help in fixing what they see, obviously, is wrong with their own face. Here's the problem, though. Selfies are often taken from a very short distance. And when you do that, you get what's called the fisheye effect, which means that anything in the center of the picture appears 30% larger than it is. Don't put your big nose in the middle of your selfies. You won't like it. Actually, one of the first things that Dr. Hammer does when people come, uh, when women come to get um, uh, uh, cosmetic surgery is he takes a real picture of them from a real distance to show them what they actually look like. Now, I already alluded to this. The other problem that people have is, is comparison, comparison. People come wanting Kim Kardashian's nose or they want Kylie Jenner's eyebrows. Actually, there's an increasing desire now among cosmetic surgeons to look like Meghan Markle. If you marry a prince, I suppose that's supposed to help you, right? 
You may not have the facial structure underneath it to look like, to support it, but that's how these patients want to look. More and more, Dr. Hummer says, people come to him with unrealistic expectations and the inability to accurately assess their own appearance. So my question this morning is, how accurate is your self-perception? How well do you see yourself? I'm not just talking about how well you see yourself in a picture or in a mirror. I actually am interested in something different. I'm curious to know about your spiritual self-perception. How well, how accurately do you understand your true spiritual condition? Uh, we spent the last several months walking through 1 John. This is the first of three small epistles that's tucked in at the end of the New Testament. We're actually going to finish 1 John today, and then, Lord willing, we're going to move on to 2 John uh, next week. This letter was written to a group of believers uh, beset with doubts. They had a, a self-perception problem, and it stemmed chiefly from comparisons they were making with themselves, between themselves, and the secessionists. There was a group of people in the church that John had pastored at one point in time who had left the church. They, they were more influenced by Greek philosophy than by the teaching of the apostles. They claimed to have the real answers. We're real Christians. You're not. You who stayed in that church led by John. Something similar happens today, of course. There are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who say, you're not real Christians. We're really following Jesus, and, and the evidence of it is that we really understand grace. We're affirming uh, everything and every choice and everyone, and, and you're not real Christians, and we are because we really, we really understand the love that Jesus has for people. So John wrote this letter, um, as, as we learned last week in chapter 5, verse 13, so that his readers would know, so that they would really know that they have eternal life, a life that's vitally connected with God. Here's a book that it's written to help you know how you know you have a real relationship with God. And John devotes most of his time, we've talked about these, to the three great tests, three tests you can give yourself. There's the love test, real followers of Jesus love one another. There's the obedience test. The command to love is one of Jesus' commands, but he gave us other commands, and, and genuine followers of Jesus take all of his commands seriously. And then there's the truth test, most centrally. Those who are genuine followers of Jesus uh, affirm the truth that the Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son come in the flesh. Those are the tests. Not everybody we know passed the test. Not everybody we know who claims to be a follower of Jesus passed the test. That's grievous. But true followers of Jesus pass the love, the obedience, and the truth test. Now we have one more paragraph before us in this letter before we finish it. And it's here to summarize and reiterate some of John's key points. And the paragraph from verses 18 through 21 is built on the word know. 1 John 5, 13, these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. And then in verse 18 begins, we know, verse 19, we know, verse 20, we know. What do we know? We apparently know a lot. Uh, here's, here's what assured Christians, here's what Christians who have assurance that they have eternal life, here's what confident Christians know. This comes in the form of declarations. We know this, we know this. We know this. They're declarations. That's true. In a sense, they're standards, though. They're, they're standards to which we're supposed to line up our lives to make sure that our hearts are in sync with them. 
kind of like a zipper. I was watching in the, in the foyer a couple of weeks ago some preschoolers zip up their jackets. You know how you do that? You take the one side and you hold it out real straight and tall, and then you, you bring the, one, the zipper with it over and you hook them together and you pull, and the, the, there's the one straight end and the other, and it just kind of sinks right into the other. And here's 1 John 5, 18. Here's what we know. Bring your heart. Make sure it's bound to these truths that we know. That's what these paragraph, this paragraph is here to do. Let's read the text, and then I want to show you two truths that John emphasizes here. All right, first, John, let's read 1 John 5, 18 to 21. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, lies under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So what do confident Christians know? Two things. Number one, confident Christians know they have a new relationship with sin. We know we have a new relationship with sin. Verse 18, very frank, uh, we know... Anyone born of God does not, now if you have a New American Standard, it just says at this point in time, sin. Anyone born of God does not sin. Well, um, continue to sin is a better, better interpretation, better translation. Uh, make a practice of sinning. Does not, does not habitually sin. Doesn't live in love and enjoy sin. New relationship with sin. John's repeating what he wrote back in chapter 3, verse 6. We look at it with me. 1 John 3, verse 6 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. There it is again. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Or verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, in both in chapters 3 and in chapter 5, in both places, John refers to being born of God. Because we have been born of God, we don't continue in sin. This is one of John's favorite images used to describe a Christian. The, and it speaks to really the radical change that takes place in the life of a person who turns and trusts in the Lord Jesus. So turning and trusting in Him, converting, is not just a question of... Um, Oh, it's not merely a new opinion, that you're thinking differently about something. It's not, it's not like joining the Y or joining a tennis club. It's an essential change of nature. It's brought about the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. It's new life. And because you're born again, you have a new relationship with sin. Sin is part of the old life. And at the end of this letter, John reminds, wants to remind you about the essential incompatibility between the new life and the old life. John Stott says... Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. Followers of Jesus know sin is not your friend. It's not who you call at the end of a long day to, to review what happened to you that day. Sin is not someone you look forward to hanging out with on the weekends. You don't follow sin on Facebook and like all of sin's posts. You don't snap with sin. Uh, you don't consult sin when you need some advice. There's no framed frame pictures of you and sin hanging out at the beach in your house. 
Uh, because you're born again, you and sin aren't compatible. You don't match on Christian mingle. Now, now, why would John have to tell us this again? Why would he remind us of this again? Uh, let, let's skip a phrase here in verse 18 and look what it says. Um, why do Christians have a new relationship with sin? Uh, why does he remind us of this? Because he tells us that the evil one cannot harm them. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You need to remember you have a new relationship with sin because even though we have a new nature, we're still under the assaults of the evil one. And we still live in a world that is under his control from which we receive opposition. We're not friends with sin anymore, but we're still subject to temptation. I bet everyone in this room at some point in time has been on a diet, right? You, you make a resolution, you decide, you resolve, you're going to eat healthier food or you're going to eat less food. Some of you, to, in order to encourage yourself, you have gone out and bought clothes that were too small for you to wear right now to mo motivate you to, buy, to be skinnier so you can fit in those clothes. I won't name names or anything like that, but some of you have done that, right? It's your solid resolution. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to lose weight. You have this resolution, but your resolution is tested all the time because donuts and pizza and ice cream and cookies and cake, they still exist in the world. Right? John refers here to the evil one. Does this remind you of all the places that John talks about the evil one in the Bible, uh, in, in his letter? Look, let's look at a couple of them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13 1 John 2, 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's good news. Verse 14, it's the same thing at the end. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Or uh, look at 1 John 3, 12. 1 John 3, 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, so murder and the hatred that, and envy that prompted is, is a sign of who you belong to. You belong to the evil one. Back in verse 8, John, had talked, uh, John wrote about the evil one, calling him the devil there. 1 John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Here's a reminder for us at the end of John's letter about what normal Christian living looks like. Normal Christian living is living in conflict. God did not choose, he did not choose to take you out of the world when you turned to Jesus. He didn't, when you, when you turned and trusted, God didn't take you home immediately. He didn't make you immune to temptation. Um, your old nature is dead, but it's still twitching. And, and, and we're, still, we're still susceptible to this temptation. It's, it's completely normal to experience temptation. What did God do to help us, though? Verse 18 tells us, well, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What does God do to help us? The one who was born of God keeps them safe. It's a beautiful phrase. We should talk about the grammar of this sentence a little bit. Uh, my translation, verse 18, trans, uh, capitalizes the O on one. Is that the way it is in your translation? Uh, the one who was born of God keeps them safe. 
what's interesting is verse 18, in the beginning and the middle, uses two similar phrases. The one born of God. The one born of God. The identical words. So it says, we know that the one born of God does not sin. The one, who was born of, the one born of God keeps them safe. So the wording is the same. And some, well, the King James translation, thinks that the second one born of God here in this verse is a re- reference to, to Christians. The first one is a reference to Christians. And the, it says the second one is a reference to Christians. In fact, the King James says the one who is born of God keeps himself safe. Now, my translation, and I think correctly, capitalizes the O in one to indicate that he's talking about the Lord Jesus here, that Jesus keeps us safe. The reason that this is reasonable to believe that is because the the words are the same, but the tenses of the verbs are different. So the first, the one born of God, is a perfect verb, and the second one is an aorist verb. Different Different tenses, different reference. So he's talking about Christians right at the beginning, the ones born of God, And then the Lord Jesus, he's the one who was born of God. And what does he do? He keeps us safe. Because we are in the world controlled by the evil one, and because we're still tempted by the evil one, we need the safekeeping of the Lord Jesus himself. Last week we sang that song, the hymn uh, that's relatively new to us, called He Will Hold Me Fast. Do you remember the first line? When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. I wonder if you noticed when we were singing this morning the second verse here of this new song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart, my sword to fight the cruel deceiver, and my shield against his hateful darts. You need keeping, and the Lord Jesus keeps you. If you're born again, you have a new relationship with sin. I wonder, though, where you place your confidence in this new relationship with sin. Uh, Look with me here. I want you to look with me at a scene from the Gospel of Luke that I think is going to help us understand what's happening here. I wrote down the verses, I think, on your note sheet. We're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verse 31. So the setting for the scene is the Last Supper. Within hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, and then he's going to be tried and then crucified. And there's this very familiar conversation that Jesus has with Peter. The Lord Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of, all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, this passage, I think, connects to John in a couple of, of different ways. First, I want you to see that Satan has to seek God's permission to tempt Peter. Do you see that in the text? Satan has to seek God's permission to tempt Peter. He has to get permission to tempt him. As powerful as the evil one is, well, the text says he's got the whole world lying in his influence. It's as if, huh, verse 19, the way the, the Bible describes it, The world is not fighting at all. It's just lying in the evil one's influence. Oh, Satan, do with me what you will. Um, um, Even though he's that powerful, he's got the whole world in his influence, he still cannot act without God's permission. The same dynamic is at at work in the book of Job. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what you can bear. Oh, sorry. Except what is common to mankind. 
and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. It doesn't seem like this, does it, sometimes, brothers and sisters? But no temptation. God does not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can manage. And he provides a way out. You ever look for it in moments of temptation? Where's the way out? Now, Satan, so Satan has to get God's permission to tempt. And what is it that Satan asked to do? The text says that Satan wanted to sift Peter. What does that mean? Uh, when I was growing up, we had a pool in our backyard. It was an above-ground round pool. It wasn't, wasn't big. Uh, it was great. We spent a lot of time in it over the summer. And we had a pool for several years that, um, uh, well, we wore it out, so we needed a new one. My dad was driving down the street one day, and he saw a sign that said, pool for sale. So he stopped and went in, and, and the person said, here's this pool. It's round. It's above ground. You can have it if you can take it apart. So uh, my dad took it apart. We got ready for the new pool in our, in our backyard. Problem was the new pool was a little bit, that wasn't a problem, but the new pool was a little bit bigger than the old pool. So we had to dig a little bit more ground in order to get a platform for this pool. So um, we all had responsibility. This is our job to remove the sod where the new pool was going to go. My father gave us a shovel. He gave us a metal garbage can, and he gave us a, a sieve that he had made. It was a, a square uh, box, a two-by-four, and, and the bottom of it was stapled to it some sort of metal fencing, I think, little metal little holes in it. So we would go out in the yard, and we would dig the dirt, and we would put it in the sieve on top of the garbage can, and we'd push the dirt back and forth that we had dug up, and all the loose dirt would fall down into the garbage can, and what was left in the sieve was the rocks and the grass. And the rocks and grass we'd throw away, and the dirt in the garbage can we would lay down on the ground to make a nice soft bed for the new pool. Uh, you're really motivated when you're trying to dig for a pool. It works really well, so, so that's what we did. Here's Peter. Here's Peter. Satan wants to put him in his sieve. He's going to knock Peter around with the hope that Peter will fall through and his faith will stay in the sieve. He wants to separate Peter from his faith. He's going to bruise and bloody him with the hopes that Peter will stop believing. Some of you are experiencing that right now in life, aren't you? You're in Satan's sieve, and he's pushing you around. You're getting cut up and bruised, and it's rough. And his goal is that you and your faith would be separated. Now, why, why did... God give Peter permission to sift Peter? Here's my studied answer. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. The Bible encourages us to uh, trust the wisdom and goodness of God. He allows us to be tempted, not beyond what we can endure, but he allows it for his, uh, our own good, his own glory. Maybe there's a hint at the end of verse 32. Maybe. He says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter has stood in the Bible for 2,000 years as a reminder to the church of Jesus Christ that God forgives. Huh. My love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He can hold Peter. He can hold any of us. What matters is the ability of the Lord Christ to hold you, not your ability to hold him. 
So Satan has to seek uh, God's permission to tempt Peter. Notice something else in this passage, though. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus prayed for Peter. He said, I have prayed for you, Simon. Now, here's a great question. How did God answer Jesus' prayer? Did God say to Jesus, no? Or did God say to Jesus, yes? I don't... On the one hand, you would think that by Peter's denial of Jesus that God said no and didn't answer Jesus' prayer, but it's impossible for me to think that the Father would not listen to the Son. So how did God answer Jesus' prayer? Warren Wearsby, maybe this is helpful, Warren Wearsby said that Peter's courage failed, but not his faith. Maybe we should think about this in terms of John's letter. So if we go back to 1 John chapter 5, remember um, in 1 John 5, 17 and 18, or 16 and 17 rather, we talked about this last week, the, uh, the two types of sin that John talks about, that there's a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. And we talked about, this is a little complicated, but the, that we talk about the sin that, does, that leads to death as the sin of a decisive break with the church. It's what, it's what the secessionists have done. They have made a clean, decisive, definitive break. They walked away. They are denying the identity of the Lord Jesus. They're leaving as a sign that they were not, never born again. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it in the first place. And, and if you walk away from Jesus, you do not have life. You have death. Peter's denial was not that sort of definitive break. In fact, Jesus rescued Peter. He appeared to him after the resurrection, and later he restored him to ministry. The one who is born of God keeps those born of God safe. Turning to and trusting the Lord Jesus changes your relationship with sin. It changes the way you encounter temptation. Jesus has taken it upon himself, the responsibility of keeping you from continuing in sin. He's committed to ensuring that you don't continue in sin. The reason that your sin that you seem to be habitually committing bothers you so much is because Jesus himself is at war with your sin. You're not fighting temptation alone. He limits how you experience it. And he is present to enable you to, to respond to it. You have a new relationship with sin that changes the way you experience temptation. I think this also respond, this changes how you respond when you fail, when you do sin, when you and sin do meet up. Our great hope is still the keeping power of Jesus. Some of you, you get overwhelmed by guilt and despair. One of the signs that Jesus' work is starting to sink in is that when you and sin inevitably meet up, you think not just about your own unworthiness, you think about the one who keeps you. The Lord Jesus himself. You, you think about his promises. You think about his keeping power. Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish pastor, famously said, for every one look at yourself, you should take 10,000 looks at the Lord Jesus. Kind of changes how you take selfies, isn't it? <laughs> his keeping power, of course, is on display in his own death and his own resurrection. He died for the sins that you are agonizing over. He already paid the penalty for them. And then his resurrection is the grand statement that satisfaction has been made. Don't trust in your own ability to be sorry, sorry or your own repentance or the sincerity of your tears or your own promises that you won't do it again or the length of your resolution. You're not that good at confession to keep yourself. 
you're not good enough at repentance to keep yourself. It has to be Jesus. Fifteen years ago, Hurricane Charlie bore down on the state of Florida, and one of the newspapers reported about the death of a Florida resident. His name was Danny Williams. Danny was 25 years old, and Danny had in his backyard a huge banyan tree, had broad, broad branches, and, and Danny loved, his favorite place in the whole world was to sit under the banyan tree. It was cool, it was quiet under there, and when Hurricane Charlie struck Florida, I don't know what Danny was thinking, Danny ran out to hide underneath his tree. The tree fell and it killed him. You cannot keep yourself. If you're relying on your ability to confess or to feel sorry enough or to regret your sin, you're trusting in the wrong thing. It has to be the one born of God who keeps us. Our confidence has always been in Him. We don't continue to sin. Even in this broken world where we're tempted by the evil one, Jesus keeps us safe. Now, that's related to the second truth that confident Christians know. What else do confident Christians know? Confident Christians know that Jesus is the one who connects us to God. Jesus is the one who connects us to God. Verse 20 says, we know also that the Son of God has come. I want you to see how many truths of John are in this verse. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John writes that the Son of God has come, an affirmation of the incarnation. He came from outside the world into the world, and what did He do? He gave us understanding. He's the source of redemption. He's the source of revelation. To what end? So that we may know Him who is true. Who is that? He's the Father. And we're in Him through the Son. There's a vital connection in and only through Jesus. I wonder if I haven't told you about my friend Jeff. Um, I've known Jeff for a long time. Jeff is a smart guy. Jeff's a medical doctor. He uh, has a family practice. He also is involved in, um, in emergency medicine. He likes to teach doctors, actually, in the emergency room con context. Uh, he has an interest in emergency medicine in um, rural, sometimes neglected areas. Uh, Jeff loves to travel. When you see Jeff, you ask him and he'll bring out his iPad and he will show you pictures of where he's been recently. He's always traveling. Um, one of the best tri trips that Jeff took was he went on a, a ship, not a cruise ship really, but a, a ship to Antarctica and spent time with, with penguins. You can see Jeff with the penguins on his iPad. Uh, Jeff likes to talk about a lot of things. He's always interesting to talk to. Um, one of my favorite <laughs> memories of, of Jeff, Jeff and I, he visited us in Dallas, Texas when we lived there. And he and I were walking downtown, just hanging out downtown Dallas, looking at various places. And we ended up wandering into the department store, Neiman Marcus. You ever heard of Neiman Marcus? Neiman Marcus is a very exclusive uh, department store, very expensive. People in Dallas call it needless markup. So... Um, <laughs> We walked into Neiman Marcus, Jeff and I, and one store clerk, the store clerk, the first one we saw looked at us and she said, the clearance section is over there. She had appropriately estimated by my own appearance my ability to buy anything at Neiman Marcus. Jeff was there. Now, I should mention, Jeff is Kathy's cousin. Uh, the only reason that I know Jeff is because of her. She told me about Jeff before I met him. She introduced us. 
She's my connection to Jeff. Without her, I, I would have no sort of relationship with Jeff at all. Have I told you about my friend, the Almighty God? He's the maker of heaven and earth. I was once his enemy, alienated from him because of my sin, but now I've been adopted into his family. He's my father, and I should tell you that the only reason that I know him, the only reason that I have any sort of relationship with him is because of his son, the Lord Jesus. He came and he told us about him. And our connection with the father is completely through him. This reminds me of a scene, a conversation that happened early in the Gospel of John. So in John chapter 1, John, the, the same author here, is describing how Jesus' disciples started following him. And, and Philip was one of the earliest people to meet Jesus. And Philip had a friend whose name was Nathaniel. And, and Philip went and got Nathaniel and brought him to meet Jesus. And, and Jesus uh, told Philip, Nathaniel what, what would happen. He, he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is very odd. Jesus uh, claiming to be some sort of elevator, escalator, ladder between heaven and earth. Actually, he's referring to Jacob. Jacob had this prayer. Do you remember this? The book of Genesis. Jacob had a prayer. He fell asleep. His head was on a rock. Not a prayer, a dream. That's what I mean. His head was on a rock. Yeah, everybody out in the room is going, yeah, you meant, you meant dream, not prayer. Um, uh, Jacob had a, a dream. He was sleeping. Uh, his head on a rock, and he saw this ladder, and angels were ascending and descending. And, and John says to Nathaniel in John 1, you know what? I'm that ladder. I'm the ladder. I'm the one who is going to connect people to God. It's through me that you're going to have a relationship with God. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you think about this with the people that you know who are not followers of Jesus. You, like Philip, may bring someone like Nathaniel to the Lord Jesus. And what is the Lord Jesus going to do? Connect them with God the Father. It's a wonderful image of, of what it means to faithfully represent him before people who don't know him. Bring people to Jesus, and Jesus will connect them with the Father. This connection also reminds me, I think, uh, 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 that we see in, in 1 John 5, 20. It reminds me of the ligaments that bind a church together. What all of the members of a church have in common is Jesus. Jesus is the only truth that we all must have in common in order to form a congregation. We don't need to be all the same race or class or income level or family type or ed education. What we have to be is what we have to have in common is Jesus. And knowing him connects us to the Father. Some of you, I know you, you think about this, you, you're, you've been following Jesus for 75 years, and, and um, I, I talk about things sometimes, well, here you sit in a church, and there's a young single guy, he's 23 years old, and you think, that guy, and here we are at church, and, and, and you wonder, I'm not even sure what a selfie is, you think to yourself. The job that he has didn't even exist when you were still working. This new job that's created that this guy has, and you don't even have any idea what it is. And it's, it's intimidating. It's frightening sometimes. But your calling is to help that guy follow Jesus more faithfully in the circumstances in which he, he lives. It's our calling because we're connected to Jesus, and Jesus connects us to the Father, and it's because of Jesus that we're connected to each other. 
uh, we know that Jesus is the one who connects us to God. And then verse 20 ends by saying, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, who's the he in verse 20? Who is the he who is the true God? Now, uh, do you remember English class? The referent of a pronoun is the person who's closest to the pronoun. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Okay, in that case, if it doesn't, I'm going to explain what that means. In that case, it would be his son, Jesus Christ, that he would be the he, that he would be the most likely object of this, a subject of this pronoun. I'm not sure that's right. If that's right, if it's talking about the son, if the he is the son, this would be one of the most explicit places in the Bible where Jesus is identified as God. That's good. That's helpful. That's actually the reformers use this verse often to press on that Jesus is God. I'm not sure that's true, though. Well, no, I'm sure that Jesus is God. That's, I'm not sure that the he is... Whew, okay, Jacob's praying and not dreaming and Jesus... Anyway, okay, so um, the he, I think the he refers to God, the Father, not the Son. God the Father is the true God and eternal life, and our connection is through Jesus. And then he says, then he says... Uh, keep yourselves from idols. That seems odd. It's an abrupt ending. He didn't talk about idols at all yet in this letter. This whole letter, he brings up idols. It's the first time it appears. Maybe he's thinking of all the Roman and Greek idols that are in Ephesus. Uh, maybe. I think, though, that John is referring here to the false gods of those who have left, the false god of those who have left the church, those secessionists. They're not affirming Jesus. They've left the church. They have a false God. They have a God who does not exist, who is an idol. There is one God. He is the true God, and he has eternal life. And if you do not know him, you do not have life. And anything less than the one true God is, is a substitute, an idol, a nothing. D.A. Carson says about this passage, there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, who like to talk about Jesus, who admire Jesus, but unless the Jesus you are referring to is the Son of God, who is Savior and Lord, he's not the real Jesus, he's just an idol. It's really popular to talk about being spiritual. I'm spiritual but not religious, but if you're spiritual without the Holy Spirit, you have a religious idol. You don't have the real Holy Spirit. Our nation, we're inundated with talk about God. We talk about God all the time. He's everywhere. But unless the God you are describing is the Father of the Lord Jesus, the true God, the source of eternal life, you're talking about a God who does not really exist. He's an idol. Keep yourselves from idols, from false gods who are not the God of the Bible. That's why we're as a church, we're so fo keenly focused on the Lord Jesus because it's through him and in him and in him alone that we know the Father who is the true God in eternal life. So what do confident Christians know? We know a lot. <laughs> but everything we know, we know only through and because of the Son. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this glad affirmation that the Apostle John gives to us at the end of his letter that is supposed to cause us to rejoice. Oh Lord, I pray that you would shape how we think about sin and about temptation because the Lord Jesus is the one who keeps us safe. 
He's the one who has loved us, who has come to die for us, who rose again, and he intercedes for us. He's our coming king. And now in the face of temptation, in the face of our own sin, the Lord Jesus is the one who keeps us safe. Oh, that's such good news. Would you settle that deeply into our minds and our hearts? That when, when temptation comes and we feel it is strong, too strong for us to resist, that you, Father, are the one who has allowed it to come and you are controlling it and the Lord Jesus is helping us. Lord, change the way that we encounter temptation because of this glad affirmation. Lord, you know our temptations and you know we live in this broken world under the control of the evil one. So sink this truth, cause it to sink deep into our minds and hearts. And how can we thank you enough again as this book closes, as we think about the Lord Jesus, who is the one who has brought us to God and connects us to God. It's in him and through him that we know you and that we pray and that we live and that we serve one another. It's a glad affirmation. How often can we say thank you? Praise your great name for your dear son. We say these things, we pray these things in his name, in fact, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. As we come to the close of our service this morning, we're going to sing one more time. Uh, I invite you all to stand as we do that, and let's affirm our confidence in Christ as we sing this song together, In Christ Alone. <laughs>